you have a Bible, open to 1 Peter chapter 1, 1 Peter chapter 1, and as you turn there, imagine uh, being given a beautiful vacation home, or, or a beautiful beach vacation home, or a lake vacation home right there on the water, and you are given uh, jet skis, and paddle boards, and kayaks, and fishing gear, just on a beautiful beach or lake where the sand is soft and the water is warm. Imagine being given this gift and never going, and never even making plans to go and to experience this home and this lake. Imagine being given a good, legitimate check for $10 million, and instead of cashing that check, you throw it in your junk drawer in your kitchen where you keep half-used batteries, you keep old stale sticks of gum, you keep the little twisty ties from the hamburger buns, and you you just throw that check in there, and you, you never cash it. You never make use of that money. Imagine being invited uh, to a taco truck, but instead of going to the taco truck, you're not hungry, you're not interested, because on the way to church, you stopped at the gas station, and you filled up on, on gas station hot dogs. And so you're not interested in, in, in the glorious taco truck. You can't eat one bite because you filled up on, on hot dogs from the gas station. What would you say to someone who seems so indifferent and oblivious to the good gifts that have been given to them? What would you say to someone who seems to be so out of touch from reality with these gifts that they have been entrusted with? Well, now imagine being given a salvation so glorious, so free in Christ. In fact, it is so wondrous that even the angels long to look into it. And that's, and that's what First Peter chapter 1 tells us in verse 12, that even the angels long to look into the glorious salvation that we have been given in Christ. It is so wondrous. It is so profound. Imagine being given a living hope, a secure, rock-solid, God-guaranteed promise of life, glory, and joy, and yet never anticipating what is to come never rejoicing in that hope, never actually hoping in the living hope that you've been given. In verse 3, Peter explains that everyone who is in Christ has been born again to a living hope, a living hope that can never die or fail or fade away. Imagine being given an inheritance from God, an inheritance that is inflation-proof, an inheritance that is eternal, It is indestructible, it is undiminishable, it is priceless, and yet imagine going through life never thinking of that inheritance whatsoever, or thinking so little of it that it produces no joy, no anticipation whatsoever. Well, in verses 4 to 5, Peter describes our inheritance in Christ this way. In fact, throughout the first 12 verses of 1 Peter, it is clear that Peter is writing to enlarge our thoughts, to help us see more clearly clearly, uh, the glory, the wonder, the joy of our salvation. Because too often we are like the person who is given that amazing vacation home, but we never go. We are like the person who is entrusted with a priceless treasure, but somehow we can't find the time to appreciate it or to make use of it. We are like the person who is invited to eat at a five-star restaurant or at a taco truck, 
but instead we settle for gas station hot dogs. Well, brothers and sisters, there is a better way, and that is Peter's point. How should we then live in response to the great salvation that we've been given in Christ? How should we think? How should we conduct ourselves in joy and in hope in this life? Peter has some thoughts for us today on this matter. Peter has some wisdom, some instruction for us to hear and to obey and to submit ourselves to. So if you're in 1 Peter, we'll begin in verse 13, which begins with this word, therefore. Therefore, in light of the salvation you have been given, in light of the inheritance that you now have in Christ, if you are in Christ, therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, believe it or not, here we see in the book of 1 Peter, this is the first command that Peter has given. He goes the first 12 verses without, any, without giving any specific imperative command to his readers until now. This is the first command that Peter gives. And it might not be what you think it is, okay? The first command in this letter is actually not the first few words of verse 13. It's not prepare your minds for action. In Greek, that's not the command. Now, that's important, but it's not the command. It's more like a modifying, clarifying, supporting statement to uh, undergird and to strengthen the command that is to come. The first command is also not keep sober in spirit. Again, that's important. We need to talk about that. We need to think about that. But that, again, is a modifying, supporting statement that builds up the actual command that comes next. So what is the first command that Peter gives in this letter where he wants to enlarge our thoughts about the glorious salvation that we've been given in Christ? It is simply this. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if you are taking notes or if you want to jot this down somewhere, the first command is this, hope fully. Hope fully, hope completely. You have been born again, brothers and sisters. You have been born again to a living hope. So according to uh, verse 3, we've been told that we have this living hope. What should we do? We should hope fully in that living hope. Hope fully in the grace of God. Hope fully in the one who died, who rose, who ascended, who is coming back for you. Hope fully because Jesus Christ is soon to be revealed in the radiance of his glory and majesty. And when Jesus Christ appears, when he is revealed, what does Peter tell us? He tells us that there is yet more grace to be given to the people of God. There is yet more grace to be showered upon the children of God. There is more grace to be lavished upon the bride of Christ. And so certain is Peter. Uh, uh, Peter is so certain of this that he writes this in, in kind of an odd way. This, this verse should perhaps best be translated and understood more in, in this way. Set your hope fully on the grace that is already on the way. It's, it is already on the way. Peter writes as though this grace is coming. It is, it has left the station. The grace train is chugging down the line. This grace that Peter writes about, it is not imaginary. It is not in doubt. 
It is already on the way. And this grace, it will be given at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it results in, it leads to, as you consider uh, 1 and 2 Peter, it, it leads to a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. It leads to, it results in complete freedom from the presence and influence of sin. It results in, it leads to uh, a new body, a resurrected body that is like the resurrected body of Christ. It leads to, it results in joy-filled fellowship with all the people of God. It leads to, it results in pure, joy-filled, uninterrupted worship in the presence of Jesus Christ. So this grace is coming it is, it is on the way, as Peter writes, where we will come to know. We will one day finally experience and know to the fullest what the psalmist wrote about in Psalm 1611, where he said, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is what? Is fullness of joy. In your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. This is all an expression of God's free glorious grace to his people meaning what meaning we don't deserve any of it we don't we didn't earn any of it christ did christ on our behalf all of this comes to us as a gift as a priceless gift through the person and work of jesus christ and as jesus is fully revealed the magnitude of his love towards his people is revealed the depth of his kindness towards his bride is revealed the strength of his joy in his redeemed people is revealed all as a testimony to his glory and grace so yes peter writes fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of jesus christ this is a good command we should be eager to do this we should be excited to do this and yet if this is true and it is why do we struggle with this so much why why why? when i wake up in the morning my first thought is not set my hope fully on the grace that will be brought to me at the revelation of jesus christ that is that is not my first thought why do we why do we stink at this why do we struggle so much to set shouldn't this come naturally to us shouldn't this come easily to us The answer is no. No, because of the effects of sin that we still experience, because of the distractions that the world wants to throw in our faces, because of the passions and the desires that at times wage war in us, because of the clever tactics of our enemy, we often struggle with this. We must learn to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ Which, of course, brings us then to why verse 13 begins the way it does. Why does verse 13 not begin with the immediate specific command that he's driving to? Why does he start with two modifying, clarifying statements to enforce this command? Because Peter's trying to teach us something. Peter's trying to show us how we can learn to set our hope completely on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter, what advice would you give us as we learn to do this, as we strive to do this? Well, Peter begins this way in verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. And then he writes also this, keep sober in spirit. Peter gives us two things to think about, two things to grow in so that we can rightly set our hope 
where it belongs. Now, if you're taking notes, you want to jot this down somewhere. That phrase, prepare your minds for action, could perhaps more literally be translated as gird up the loins of your mind or gather together the loose ends of your distracted thinking. That's a, that's a strange thing to write, isn't it? Gird up the loins of your mind. What does gird even mean? And why does Peter talk about loins and minds in the same sentence? What is he getting at? Well, in Peter's day, they would wear long flowing tunics or shirts or robes. And when they needed to move into action or into battle, they would take those loose ends, that fabric and tie it together or tuck it into a belt so that they could move and they could run. And Peter is here connecting that imagery for us in our minds. Peter is is telling us that mentally we need to put away our bathrobe and put on our running shorts. Mentally, you need to put away the bathrobe, the long, plush, heavy, comfy bathrobe, and you need to be prepared for action mentally in in your mind. Too many of us are walking around and we are ready to lounge. We are ready to see what's new on Netflix. We are ready to sit on the couch and scroll aimlessly for hours. We are ready to watch more funny cat videos on YouTube. We are ready to be entertained by every distraction that the world throws at us, but we're not ready to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us when Jesus Christ returns. Now, don't answer out loud, but how would you describe the condition of your mind this last week, this last month, this last year? You know, in in, in studying these verses, whenever I read this text, I am so plagued and bothered by my own answer to that question because I I have one of these. Have you ever seen one of these? People in Southern California, in Indiana, these are popular, man. Everyone got a smartphone. I got to tell you, this smartphone has turned me into a very dumb person because I find myself at times so distracted and so prone to wander in my thinking. How many hours of scrolling? How many silly games can I download? How many distractions? How many alerts? How many loose ends can I introduce into my life before I've put on that big, plush, heavy bathrobe? And I am just ready to lounge. Now, listen, I'm not saying it's a sin to own a smartphone. I'm not saying it's wrong to own a smartphone. I'm not saying you have to delete almost every app off your smartphone like I've chosen to do, but it might be good advice to think about doing that. It might be good advice to examine where your mind is in light of the technology that you use. Because let me tell you this, it is more important to have a mind prepared for action than it is to own a smartphone. It is more important to have a mind that is prepared for action than to use any piece of technology, no matter how much you love it. The question is, are you willing to do whatever it takes to have a mind that, as Peter describes, is prepared for action, is ready to run, is ready to move, is prepared to set your hope on what is real, 
on what is reality, on what is to come when the Lord Jesus Christ returns because he is soon to appear. And the reason why we know that this is so important, the reason why we know that this weighs so heavy on the heart and mind of Peter is because of the way these two phrases support the main command. Look again at verse 13. It reads, Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope halfway on the grace that will be brought to you at the fix your hope sometimes on the grace that will be brought to you fix your hope 60% on the grace that will be brought to you fix your hope when you're not too busy watching television on the grace that will fix your hope completely completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ you've probably heard the saying don't put all your eggs in one basket don't tell that to peter don't tell that to Peter. He, he wants you to invest your hope on what is real, on what is true, on what the Word of God reveals to us about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Set your hope here. Now, as a way to underscore this command, Peter next warns us about a constant threat, a real and present danger that we face every day. Look at verse 14 says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts, which were yours in your ignorance. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Here we see a negative command, and that is don't be conformed. Don't be conformed. Now, <laughs> while this is a negative command in the sense that Peter is telling us not to do something, he introduces this command in the most wonderful way possible. Peter introduces this command in the most encouraging way possible. What are the first three words of verse 14? As obedient children. As obedient children. That's so good. So, okay, think about that for, for just a moment. Children, why are we children? Why, why is it that Peter can call his readers, these believers, children? Why are they children? Because God had adopted them. Because Jesus Christ died to bring us to the Father. We are children of God because God chose to set His love upon us, to set His grace and His favor upon us. And why are we obedient? Why do we obey Christ and care about God's commands? We obey because we love the Lord Jesus Christ. We obey as an expression of our love and trust and thanksgiving to God. Jesus said in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. And then Jesus says this, whoever does not love me does not keep my words. We obey not to make God love us but because we recognize He has already loved us so lavishly in Christ. We obey not to become children of God, but because we are children of God, because of the work and merit of Jesus Christ. We obey not to coerce God into giving us something, but we recognize God has already given us the greatest gift in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as obedient children, what are we warned not to do? Verse 14, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. If this verse teaches us anything, it teaches us that we all have an ugly past. We do. We all 
have a past. This verse only makes sense if we used to live in ignorance. That's, that's what Peter describes here, that we were living at one time in ignorance of Christ, ignorance of his redeeming work, ignorance of his power, his grace. Before coming to faith in Christ, we were ruled by sinful desires that would lead us into all kinds of dark and destructive places. We all had a taste for sin, a hunger for sin. And even now, even though sin's ruling power over us has been broken, there are times when we find that sin still seems attractive to us. When old desires get rekindled, when we are tempted to even run back to old idols, that's the reality. Which is why Peter encourages us to remember that we're not who we used to be. If you are in Christ, you are not who you used to be. We are now obedient children, which is why he begins verse 14 this way, by reminding them who they are. They are obedient children. We don't have to be conformed to. We don't have to be manipulated by old passions and habits and desires. Instead, by faith, by the power of God at work in us, we can choose something gloriously different. We are called to something gloriously different. It, it looks like this in Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It looks like Colossians 3.2. Set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. It looks like Ephesians 5, 8, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Each and every day, we are confronted with the question of what we will fill our minds with, what we will allow to influence our thinking and our emotions, what we will allow to speak into our lives. Here in verse 14, Peter reminds us we are not defined, we are not confined by our past. Whatever that past is, we are free to walk in the light, we are free to have and to continually have our thinking renewed. So don't be conformed, which is a negative command. And now in verses 15 and 16, Peter lays out a wondrous, all-encompassing positive command. Look at verse 15. Peter writes, but, so don't be conformed to the passions and desires of your former ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So here's the positive command. Be holy. Be holy as God is holy. Be holy in all your conduct, all your actions, in all your activity. Be holy because God commanded his people in the Old Testament to be holy. And, and that is still relevant. God's heart, his desires for his people have not changed. As Peter quotes here from Leviticus 11.45, that is still relevant. It still reflects God's desires for his people. Leviticus 11.45 says, For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God. Thus you shall be holy, for I am holy. So in conclusion, be holy as God is holy. Good. I'm God glad we got that cleared up. Now we can move on to the next point. No, 
No, not at all. Not so fast. What does that even mean? What does that mean when God says, be holy? And then what does it mean when God says, be holy as I am holy? And why does God care so much? Why is this so important on the heart and mind of God that he would inspire Peter to write this and to reinforce this? Why did Jesus talk so much about the need for holiness in his people and and in his disciples? Why is this repeated so urgently and so often throughout the Bible? There are many things, brothers and sisters, that we could say in response to this issue. But the central issue here in First Peter is this. God desires for his children to be like him. God desires for his children to walk after him to grow, to know Him, to imitate Him, to love Him, to follow Him. God is gloriously holy. He is perfectly pure. He is untainted by sin. And God desires for His people to be like Him. And listen, God is good. In fact, God is the very definition of what is good. Without God, there is no good. He shows us what is good. He is good. He does good. And God desires for his children to be like him. This call to holiness is so important because it is a call to godliness. It is a call to Christ-likeness. It is a call to reflect the nature and the character of God Himself. And the Apostle Paul, he wrote something so similar to this in Ephesians chapter 5, where he wrote at the beginning saying, Therefore, be imitators of God. Be imitators of God. And then Paul writes, as beloved children, right? He sounds a lot like Peter here, as beloved children. Peter said, as obedient children. Paul says, as beloved children. And then Paul writes this, and walk in love. Walk in love, just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us in offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Christ He is our picture of holiness. He is our picture of love. He is the standard that we look to. And why does God care so much about this? Why does God care that we be set apart to continually grow, to be more like Him? Well, think of it like this. And I know that you you already know this to be true, but I'm going to remind you of this. Anyway, God is passionate for His glory. Amen? He is so passionate for His glory. God is also passionate for the good of His people. And the wonderful truth is that God is glorified by, and our greatest good is accomplished in our holiness, our growth in holiness. What brings God glory? A holy people, a people that reflects him, his character, his nature. What is good for us? Our holiness, that we grow to become more like Jesus. Be holy as God as holy. Listen, this is not a dull command. This is not a stick in the mud command. This is not a kill joy command. This is a call for our greatest good. This is a call for our true joy, for our highest joy. This is a call to trust that God really does know what is best for us. And the good news is that as God calls us to holiness, 
He equips us for that very work. He empowers us to that very pursuit. God does not leave us to ourselves, but he works in us to make us more like Christ. Lastly, in verse 17, Peter leaves us with a sobering command. He leaves us with words that are intended, in case we're still asleep, he intends to wake us up. He he intends to call us to, to attention. Look again at verse 17. He says, and if, if you call on him as father. Now, stop there for just a moment. Do you? If, Peter writes, if you call on him as father, do you? To be a Christian is to know God as father, to call upon him as father, to be restored and adopted unto him in Christ. So what about this God? that we know as Father, that we call upon as Father. Peter writes, and if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds. Now, here it is. Here's the command. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. Here we see a very sobering command, and it's this. Walk in godly fear. Walk in godly fear. Walk in godly fear throughout your entire life. Conduct yourselves with reverence and in the fear of the Lord for how long, Peter? Well, as Peter writes, throughout the time of your exile, meaning until the Lord Jesus Christ returns, until the revelation of Christ, which brings us back to our first point to how we started to set our hope completely on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. But the point is this, because God is our father, we are to consciously live each day in his holy presence. We live before the face of God, whether we recognize it or not. We live in the presence of the Holy One who is our gracious Father. And because this is true, we as believers can confidently say, I am His, He is mine, He is here, and that changes everything. I am His, He is mine, He is here, and that changes everything. As believers, we, we can say that. We get to say that. Here's what we don't get to say. If you're a Christian, here's what you don't get to say, according to Peter. You don't get to say, my daddy is the judge. And my daddy says that I can do whatever I want. And there will be no consequences for me. My daddy will just pat me on the head and he will send me on my way. Oh, no. Oh, no, friend. If that's you, you are quite mistaken. If God is indeed your father, this ought to produce in us reverence, godly fear, honor, respect for him. Why? Because as Peter writes, our father is impartial. He is impartial. That is to say, he is not manipulated by a pretty face. He is not manipulated by someone who can offer him money or something that he doesn't already possess. He cannot be bribed. He sees through every lie. He sees to the heart and to the motive of every person. He never turns a blind eye 
to the wrong, destructive, reckless behavior of his children. Now, now you're thinking, well, but what about Romans 8.1? And yes, Romans 8.1 is absolutely true. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise God, we are completely free from the wrath and condemnation of God. And yet in this life, God will, when necessary, discipline us for our good. Why? that we may share his holiness, which is Peter's point here, that we would be holy, that we would learn to walk in holiness. Hebrews 12 makes this abundantly clear that God is a good and a faithful father who disciplines his children. 1 Corinthians 3 is also so clear that one day the life, every believer's life will be tested and evaluated before Christ and what is worthless will be burned up and what is good will be rewarded. But again, the point is, as Peter writes, knowing God is father, it ought to produce in us, yes, joy and comfort and peace. And it also ought to produce fear, respect, reverence, worship unto God. And why must this be so? Why is this absolutely the case? Go two more verses. Because as Peter writes next, we walk in reverence and worship knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your fathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. This morning, if you are not a Christian, we beg of you to repent of your sins. We beg of you to hear this text, to see the graciousness of God in Christ, to see the sacrifice that has been made, and to repent to confess your need for Christ, to call out to him even now in your heart and mind and to find life and healing and joy in Christ. If you, if you are not a Christian, if you are not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, do not wait until tomorrow. Tomorrow is the worst day to follow Jesus. Follow Jesus today. Today's the right day to follow Jesus. Today's the right day to love Christ, to worship him to, to adore him. If you don't know Christ as Lord and Savior, confess your need and come to him today. If you are already a Christian, we praise God for that. We would ask you to humbly consider what, what Peter writes here. We would encourage you to ask yourself, are you setting your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, we want to encourage you to gird up the loins of your mind. We plead with you to distance yourself from anything that hinders your thinking and your pursuit of Christ. Throw off every unhelpful distraction. Throw off every unhelpful form of entertainment, anything that keeps you from delighting in and following Christ. He is worthy. He is worthy of your worship. He is worthy of your trust. He is worthy of your reverence and of your fear. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you and praise you for what you have done for us in Christ. We thank you for the ways that you have loved us, that you would 
save us and redeem us and reconcile us because of the merit and work of your Son. Lord, we pray that you would bring to our minds those things that we need to forsake, those things that become a stumbling block to us to keep us from seeing and loving Christ as we should. Lord, we pray that until that day when Jesus returns, that we would do, as Peter says, that we would set our hope fully on what is to come, knowing that you are good. You are worthy of our love, worthy of our worship. And we pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.